Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, before we get the show started, I wanted to let you know we are giving away a bunch of brand new black magic gear. Yeah, cameras, switchers, DaVinci Resolve licenses, a bunch of awesome stuff. So stay tuned to learn how you can enter to win free gear from Black Magic, and we're going to tell you all about it later on in this episode. Now cue the music. Hey, welcome to the 218th episode of Just Shoot It, a podcast about filmmaking, screenwriting, and directing. This episode is brought to you by patrons Ryan Godoy and Ken Nolan. I'm Matt Lowe. And I'm Warren Kaplan, and today we are talking to Lynn Chen. She is an actor, filmmaker, producer, writer. She has been on many TV shows you've heard of, but now she has taken the director's seat and she has made a movie that I watched and really enjoyed. And I didn't even realize at the time that it was part of a trilogy. The film is called I Will Make You Mine. It's part of the Surrogate Valentine series. What's interesting about this is the first two films in this trilogy were directed by Dave Boyle. Lynn was in both of those movies and she tells the story of how she came to the decision that she was going to finally put the ending to this trilogy that she thought it deserved she really ran with things she wrote it she stars in it she directed it she fundraised it it's really an example of just shooting it but what's fascinating is that you know she had this whole other career as an actor she was a jack of many trades but filmmaking hadn't been the thing that she had set her mind to until she realized oh if i don't make this movie no one's going to get the ending to the story that I believe in so much. And that's the final tipping point that put her over the edge. And she decided, oh, I'm, I'm a director now. I'm going to make this movie myself. And aside from making a great movie that's in black and white, by the way. Uh, uh, and with the South by Southwest premiere and distribution. She, what I really like about her story is just that idea that when you think something should be made but no one is making it, it might actually be a perfect opportunity for you to make something. Whether it's a project that you originated and you had an idea and you came up with it and you wrote it and you made it, or you were inspired by something else, I think part of what empowered her to make the third movie of a trilogy is that you know there's some extra confidence you get from adding on to something. I know this is a little different, but when I used to do all that parody stuff, it came easy because I was kind of looking at other things that came before me and, and taking the best things that I liked. You had a foundation. Yeah, and I think this is a good lesson to take from Lynn. Like, don't worry if you can't just sit there and come up with like a totally original idea yourself. Like, look around at what other things have been made. Like, a big takeaway I took from this and what's really cool about Lynn's story is how 
you know, it just never hurts to go and ask someone if you can contribute to the art that they started. Before we get into our conversation with Lynn, we did have a listener question that we wanted to take a look at. From Fernando Lopez in Ohio. Let's dive into it. Cool. So Fernando wrote us an email. I'm going to paraphrase it. Basically, he's an engineer during the day and a filmmaker by night. He's done commercial jobs. He's made decent money. He's played at cool film festivals, Cleveland, Fantasia, Maumee, etc. But he kind of got burnt out between his like day job as an engineer, you know, supporting his entire family, and also a night job as a filmmaker, working like 100 hours a week. So he took a break for 18 months, and... In that time, a year and a half, a substantial time, amount of time to take a break from filmmaking, he kind of lost touch with a lot of the people that he was a filmmaker with, you know, the, the people that would all help each other out. And now as he's trying to ramp back up to do his passion projects and get back into filmmaking, he still has access to all this equipment and he still has this track record of making cool stuff, but he can't get like all his old buddies that have kind of moved on to be on board with him and working for free and helping each other out, uh, he's having trouble restarting the tribe that he had Mm -hmm. developed Mm -hmm. in his original phase one as a filmmaker. So he's asking us if we have any tips on how to rekindle the tribe, the spirit of community in filmmaking. Yeah, well, Fernando, first of all, thanks so much for reaching out to us and congratulations on all your successes already. You know, I know it feels like you've been out of the game for a while. Kind of feels like we're all out of the game right now. And, but don't worry, man. Uh, you'll be able to jump back in there, lickety split. But I get what, where you're coming from. You know, I think that it, it can be challenging to keep people motivated when you know the you don't doesn't feel like you have a ton to offer people right now, whether that's financially or in exposure or fame or status. You know, it, it's funny. I think back to like when I was a kid making. Uh, like funny videos with my friends, like my earliest, earliest proto version of filmmaking, we would always like screen the videos at parties. Yeah. And, and then the other kids at the party would be like, oh, that's cool. I want to be in one of your videos because they're seeing the other kids who, you know, spent a couple afternoons, you know, getting covered in ketchup or whatever it was. And getting laughs. And I was right. like, oh, this, there's a social status to this. Ketchup as in blood. Fake blood, yeah. But I, I think that those weird early lessons of like, how can I make someone a little cooler for being in my videos? Maybe there's a, a little bit of a kernel of something there now. Right. Like, if you can help get somebody laid through being a filmmaker, <laughs> you're on to something. That's, a, that's the second non-Matt Enlow thing I've, I've heard from you in the past day. Um, I mean, I guess, do you think Fernando should try to get back his old crew or do you think he should try to make a new crew? I think maybe it's time, time to blend the groups. But if, if people aren't motivated because of any number of reasons, whether they're, you know, they have to focus on family or they're broke or they thought that they were going to get laid from making movies and it didn't work out for them. You know, like there's only so many times that you can kind of try and get somebody motivated. Right. And I think, uh, you know, if you're up and running, if you're making something, it's a lot easier to say yes. Right. So if you're like, hey, guys, we're shooting on this day. I've already got a DP. I rented the camera. I'm counting on you to be there. And if they're like, I don't know, I'll, I'll try. 
then you probably have a good sense that they're not actually going to show up, in which case you need to account for that. But uh, but if they're like, oh, you're serious. Yeah, I love making movies with you, man. Thanks for setting a date. Then you know you can count on them. But you kind of have to fill in those gaps. And, and don't be surprised when people who you have a hunch maybe aren't going to be able to follow through for whatever reason don't, you know? Yeah. But, but, but I think the, the bigger question really is like, what are the tangible ways that you can motivate somebody to help you out and make this movie beyond, you know, me just trying to be funny. Well, something you always say, and you even say it about our podcast is when someone is doing work for you for free, your main job is to figure out why it's worth it for them, what they're getting out of it. You know, um, Fernando says that a lot of the people he works with work as grips, gaffers, you know, electrics, uh, various departments on bigger paid gigs. You know, he's in Cleveland, which is a smaller market, but they still there is still a good amount of still production a that goes market, there. Yeah. But he says his friends want to be DPs, editors, actors, producers. So obviously giving them that opportunity is great. I mean, we've never worked with you, Fernando, so we don't know what kind of personality you are. If you're like an auteur quote unquote filmmaker that doesn't let other people <laughs> contribute too much of their own creative ideas to your project that's probably going to be hard to get a dp or a producer or an actor even on board for free but if you are the type of person that's like hey i had this idea will you help make this our project instead of my project i think that's one way of thinking about projects that is easier and hey maybe you'll pitch your project to a bunch of people and no one's interested in making that project then move on to the next project find something that you know your community wants to work with you on but I do think like kind of one interesting thing and this is something that happens I mean I know it happens to Matt and me a lot in LA especially because we're in LA is a lot of our collaborators from when we started in the business are very successful now like a lot of the DPs I worked with 10 years ago are shooting studio films so for Mm -hmm. me to say hey come shoot this commercial for me like you better bet your ass and I'm trying to figure out how I can get them paid because they are a more valuable, experienced, skilled artist now than they were 10 years ago. So it makes sense. Yeah, I, to me, it just feels icky when like I'm begging people to do favors for me. You know, if they don't want to work with you, then that's fine. You can find other people. I mean, I guess the last two points I want to make is one, Fernando a number of times mentioned to us that he gets paid well at his day job and actually did pretty well financially from his commercial work so it's not the end of the world if you spend ten thousand dollars on your own short film and actually pay these people you know Mm. um yeah that's interesting that maybe is the answer not everyone has to go on kickstarter and get other people to pay for their movies if you want to make a short film i'm sure you know how to cut corners get locations for free get you know cast Mm -hmm. for cheap but pay your freaking gaffer it's not you know sometimes you're doing some coverage or you don't have a lot of lights or you don't have a lot of crew, pay them five, 600 bucks to come for the day, you know, and work around their schedule if that's like the missing piece to your puzzle. But the other thing I'll say, and it's something that I know Fernando already knows, is just like write to your resources. Like he has this short film, Eddie's Island, that got great reviews, that played at the Orlando Film Festival. Like I watch it, it, it looks great, but it looks like, you know, it's almost all exteriors. It's too characters like mostly sunlit like you could make that short with a 10 you know person crew maybe i mean there's a bar location there's some complicated things in it but like Mm -hmm. during this pandemic one of the things that i've learned is that you can make stuff by yourself i made Mm -hmm. these 
things that I put on Twitter uh, or Instagram. I just did a couple shots with my drone, just totally by myself of my street. Then I put some like robots in them, you know, in 3D and just kind of played around, followed some tutorials. And after posting those, I had all, a f- few different actors and a couple DPs also text me and saying, saying like, hey, when are we making our, you know, robot, our, our robot battle end movie? End of the world movie, yeah. Yeah, can I be in it? And so like, that's kind of what I mean by pitching stuff. Like you don't need everyone excited at first to just make a movie. Like get them excited about what you want to make, I think. Um, I know it's easier said than done, but if no one else is excited about it, then figure out how you make it without them or pay. Yeah, I I think that's really great. I think your point about like maybe paying them a little bit is also pretty valuable. And I don't know, we kind of in a broader sense, I don't know where any of our listeners are financially. And like, obviously this is a very weird time to be talking about like how 10,000 bucks is worth it to spend on a short film. But, but I think there's probably a thousand bucks for a day or two worth of shooting where you get like a few key crew members uh, mm-hmm. to like come together, especially if you're talking about like exterior day, you know, like that, that to me actually, I think is maybe a little bit more actionable. I think there does come a time where you kind of have to just pony up a little bit. Yeah. And don't, I mean, I know Fernando has done documentary stuff too. Like just you take that approach to your scripted narrative stuff too, you know, like, yeah. I mean, honestly, like, a really great script and an iPhone and no lights or sound or anything. Maybe one wireless love, which by the way, Fernando said he owns. Sure. There you go. That's most of the way there. And also maybe scratches that itch a little bit. And again, I think to your point of writing to your resources, if it's something where it's like, Oh, this is kind of elevated because it's shot on a cell phone can be just as good. So, you know, if it's something where you're really at a point in your career where you really you got to make this kind of proof of concept thing that you think is going to show people what you can do on a really big scale, then sometimes you have to make that investment. But if it's something where you're just trying to scratch the itch of like being a cool filmmaker and, you know, figure out a couple different ways to do it or what your resources and skills are. Maybe you're an animator or an illustrator or a VFX artist or a sculptor or painter there's a lot of different ways to to come at it that make it feel elevated and interesting and thoughtful don't be sloppy but you can do all of those with really affordable tools yeah and i just want to let you know fernando you are totally not alone like matt and i and many filmmakers i know who started out just making stuff with our friends for no money it's hard for us to find free you know any crew that will work for us for free right now that is good and experienced and we want to work with yeah without a doubt pay those favors back too like sometimes it just means crewing for other people holding the boom pole doing those vfx for free you know all of that stuff that you can do to like help people out so that you know when the time comes you can cash in on those favors a little bit and then you're also building community as well or just co-direct it with someone rich yeah, there the you go. Way to do it. Yeah. <laughs> well, hey, thanks so much for writing in, Fernando. If you have a question, you can leave us a voicemail at 262-SHOOT-1 or leave us an email at justshootitpod at gmail.com. Or uh, we're both on Twitter, so that's great, too. Yes, please tweet at me. I love it. Orin has discovered Twitter. What's it called? The stuff in your brain? A uh, little uh, serotonin. Yes, serotonin hit every time someone adds me. It's like Orin just did a tiny bit of molly. <laughs> yeah. Very little. Let's talk to Lynn.
Okay, we got Lin Chen, writer, director, star, and producer of I Will Make You Mine, a South by Southwest movie of the festival that went completely online. Uh, the good news for you, Lin, is that uh, your movie is distributed and out, and uh, by the time this episode is available, I think people can watch it on VOD and where people typically watch movies. Yes, and DVD also. Oh, there you what? go. Yeah. How do you watch it on DVD? Netflix uh, DVD by mail? You can buy it from Amazon. I think it's already available on Target, all those. I think it'll be on Blu-ray, actually. Oh, that's cool. That's awesome. Congratulations. Well, I wonder how often they do that. You're, you're, you're with Gravitas, right? They're, yes. They distributed your film? We, we sold it to Gravitas before South by Southwest mm-hmm. happened. So I did feel very lucky when that ship went down. You know, a lot of the filmmakers were freaking out and sure. I was lucky that I didn't have to worry about that. Right, yeah. Yeah. Can you just give us the logline real quick of the movie? Or if you want I can I can guess at a logline, which is something I I want to hear your guess. I used to do. And it's just made up right on the spot. So so I will make you mine is a story of a musician and his relationships over time with three different women and kind of how their love I guess maybe, and it's about kind of how love changes over time from friendship to more romantic relationships and back and how these four different people are dealing with it across their lives in L.A. Is that something like that? That's pretty good. That's that's kind of it. That's kind of it. Do you have the boilerplate? Like, what do you typically say? You're (laughs) at a party, (laughs) you know, you've been practicing in the mirror on your way to South by Southwest before it gets canceled. What do you what do you typically say? We typically say it's the story of three different women who explore their past relationship with the same man who is a retired musician named Go Nakamura. It's kind of a reverse high fidelity. Yeah. But before I even go into that, I always tell them how it's a trilogy Mm -hmm. and how this movie is sort of the female perspective, the feminine perspective of what a movie that was started and written and starring a man and how this movie sort of turns all that on its head and tells the story the same story but from the female point of view but you don't need to have seen that other film in order to get yours no 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 no. it's it's very much a standalone film and also the feel of it is generally very different even though the other two movies were also in black and white as is this one the feel of it is just i mean the first two were these buddy road trip movies much Mm -hmm. more comedic they also went to south by southwest did they star Go Nakamura? Yes, and Go's music is at the front and center of those movies, which it is in this movie as well. But then we also add in Ye Ming Chen, who plays herself also another another Bay Area musician who plays herself. So whereas like those two movies like were these dudes goofing off in a car, my movie is like everyone is old mm-hmm. <laughs> and mm-hmm. uh, and static, mm-hmm. and uh, it's a lot heavier. Mm-hmm. dealing with like reality a lot more than than the but that two. said i just want our listeners to know it, it is still like a very light fun musical movie even yes. though some of the subject matter is is heavy but i guess it's more just like kind of deep relationship issues that people are going through right but i never felt like i was like like it was a downer in any way you know obviously. there's drama but yeah yeah but you're not yeah. like oh boy so I didn't know that this was part of a trilogy until I was reading about it after I watched the movie. So there's some guy named Dave Boyle, right? Yes. He, he made the other two movies? Yes. So Dave, and, he wrote and directed the Surrey of Valentine, which was the first movie, and Daylight Savings, which was the sequel. This was in 2011 and 2012. And when we went to South by Southwest with those two movies and toured with it, he always said, this is going to be the lowest budget trilogy ever made. And I just sort of believed him 
<laughs> and uh, seven years had passed, and there was no third movie. Each movie ended with a cliffhanger, mm-hmm. and you did not know who Go ended up with. Wait, so the um, footage in your movie where we see them as the younger versions of themselves, that was actually, is that from the other movies? Yes. Yes, oh. and actually, a lot I was of like that... they look so much younger. I'm like, he just shaved his <laughs> like, beard. Wow, this is incredible. <laughs> well, it was yeah. funny because a lot of those flashbacks, we we just basically after they, we inserted those after we did some testing, and a lot of the audience was, you know, it was the people who hadn't seen the first two movies. They weren't really understanding the nostalgia that mm-hmm. all of us were feeling, you know. So I wanted to inject some of that. So we would have to like go back. And sync footage from like 2011 Mm -hmm. (laughs) that like none of us expected ever to see the light of day ever again. But those were the the shots that I wanted to use. I wanted to use things that hadn't been seen in the first two mm -hmm. movies. So like that whole there's a whole opening sequence where Go is playing uh, a song. And um, we didn't have that in the first movie. And it's like great footage. So like Mm -hmm. I'm really happy that we were able to revisit it and reopen it for this but yeah. that was not planned we I, were lucky I, I guess the question that immediately springs to mind is why make the third part of a trilogy that wasn't your original project right like obviously there i'm sure there's a ton of advantages like what we're talking about here with having like pre-existing footage and things that you can be feel nostalgic about and stuff but did you ever question doing that versus just creating your own film from whole cloth? So I've been an actor over three decades for a very long time. And obviously I've been told throughout my career, like, you know, you should write, you should produce, you should do something yourself. And every time I sat down to write a script, I would freak out and stop. Mm-hmm. And as I got older, I was just sort of like, I'm not... I've worked so hard to get to this point. I just didn't mm-hmm. want to like start from scratch again. And uh, I just love acting. So there was a part of me that was just like, it's not my path. I, I have zero desire to be a filmmaker and tell my story that way. And then when I went hiking with Dave Boyle before Thanksgiving in 2018, I had found the DVD and the DVD said, the trilogy continues. And so I thought to myself, hey, I really liked being in those movies. I'm not doing anything next year. Maybe Dave will do it again and I'll have a job. So when I went hiking with him, I just brought it up very casually. Like, are you going to make the third movie in the Surrogate Valentine series? And when he said like, no, I have zero intention of doing that. At this point, Dave had done he had made a movie called Man from Reno that won the uh, won a lot of awards, won LA Film Festival, won an Independent Spirit Award. Like, He'd moved on. He had moved on, and he was he had mm-hmm. zero interest in doing a movie that was so micro budget, mm-hmm. which is what this movie just needs to be by its nature. And I think for him also at this point, seven years had passed, and he was like, "What's the story? Like, is he going to go on another road trip? Is he like mm-hmm. still looking for a woman? Like, how how is this going to pan out?" So like he just was like zero interest. And when he said that, my heart really broke because I, as a fan of the trilogy, felt really let down. But also, I wanted to work. So I said to him, (laughs) what if I make it happen? I don't even know what the hell I meant by that. Because I hadn't even like written a short or directed Mm -hmm. a short or like done anything behind the camera. But something within me was like, do it. 
So I said that. And then when Dave said, like, I'll give it to you, I'll, I'll give you the series. I'll let you direct it and I'll help you. Mm-hmm. And when he said that, I was like, this is an opportunity. This guy is offering me mentorship mm-hmm. and um, like basically a franchise that I'm really comfortable with and that I love and that mm-hmm. I could do. Right. And, and you happen to be in. <laughs> and I happen to be in. Like, I also felt like there's nobody else who could have done it because I was, aside from Go, who was not going to write it um, or direct it, like, I was the only one who had been in all three movies. Mm-hmm. So he gave me his blessing. I don't think he took me that seriously. And then the next day was Thanksgiving, and I got on the plane, and I opened my computer, and I just started writing. And I wrote the first half of that draft on that plane ride and then like in the final rest of draft it. or like um, no i wrote it on like apple like the pages like template sure <laughs> great page, but, which, but in the screenplay format you weren't yes. just like jotting notes down you like yes. actually wrote the screenplay so i wrote i wrote that entire first draft i thought the first half the first half of it was a little bumpy so now it kind of yeah, sure yeah <laughs> a little turbulent i think is what you mean yeah. <laughs> and that was the first script you ever wrote what well, was the first feature I had ever read? But Thank did not you. Feel, it did not feel I have like... read a lot of scripts. Right, Probably sure. Probably more yeah. than the average bear. Yeah. So, I've eaten a lot of meals, but my cooking is there. <laughs> <laughs> when, I, when I sent him the, the PDF and was like, here you go, I think he was like, oh, no, she's serious. <laughs> she's actually really serious. And then I, I just, like, had this hunger in me that was just like, he was like, okay, well, we can, you know, try to shop this around and try to find some investors and the more we did that, the more I had to wait. And the more I was just like, mm, I just want to do this. I'm going to put some money in my own in. Let's kickstart it. Let's like just do this. Can you tell us numbers at all in terms of like ballparks or anything like that? We raised a little over 40000 on Kickstarter mm-hmm. and then threw in most the other half ourselves. So like mm-hmm. it was five figures. So five it, figures is under $100,000. Yes. And but that said, like, a lot of things came for sure. free. And Everything's for free. and for, yeah. yeah, yeah, totally, yeah. What were the big expenses? I'm curious. The, well, so one of the big things that, that we um, got for free was that Bill, who I had mentioned, he, he got the camera for at least the first half, uh, which was, it was David Fincher's camera that there's only a few of, the red camera. The monochrome, the monochrome red camera. Yes, yes, yes. Hmm. And the reason we were able to do that was because for in order for him to get time off from teaching and able to still get paid was that he had to learn a new skill. Black and white digital cinematography. There you go. So that's the skill he learned. And that's what, you know, helped cut out a significant portion of the budget. Did you shoot on anamorphic lenses? Yes. It, look, it looks great, by the way. Before we go too far down, I, I think that's something really important and really really teachable is that we always talk about like how there, there's a lot of different ways to pay a crew member or a contributor in some way. Some of that is going to be money, and sometimes it's going to be experience or, you know, in rare situations, exposure. But the experience, I think I've never heard someone put such a fine point on it of like, I have to learn a new skill. I'm very good at my job, so you have to offer me something that I've literally never done before. How did you negotiate that? Like, how did you come to terms with that being the solution? 
Well, I think, you know, first and foremost, we wanted Bill because he had shot the first two movies. And then we mm -hmm. were just trying to figure out how can we make it so that Bill can, like, leave his family in Utah for a week or two and, you know, be with us and not take too much of a financial hit. So he knew that there was actually the head of the program in Utah had produced the first two movies. He didn't produce this movie, but he helped us out with that, you know, of like, thinking of, of an interesting way of how we, he could how help to us court out. Bill. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Well, something I wanted to ask you about that you kind of touched on a little bit already, but it's something we haven't really talked too much about on the podcast is about coming up with a good opening for your movie. I think it's something that's really important. You know, a lot of times there's like an opening image, right? That it should kind of be introducing us to what your movie is about and what the world is. And the opening of your movie is the is the song played by Go, and you just and I didn't realize that it was like old footage. How did you decide to do that? Can you just kind of walk us through how you decided to like, like what thinking went into how to start this movie? So when I was sitting in that airplane writing the script, the first thing I thought of was. Because I didn't know I was going to tell the story from the female perspective. I thought I was going to tell another story with Go starring it. I just knew it was going to be seven years later. And there's a video of Go playing Just Like Heaven on <laughs> YouTube that has over a million hits. And it's, it's amazing. And I thought to myself, well, I'd like to see Go on YouTube. I'd like that to be the first image that we see of him. <laughs> because that song, I feel like whoever you are, you hear that song and you, you, you immediately get nostalgic, probably for your first love. And I wanted that song. And mm -hmm. immediately Dave was like, you're not going to get that song. <laughs> That's not happening. But I still wrote it into the script, thinking that what it would be would be this image of Go playing the song that everyone can relate to. And then immediately seeing that like he's actually it's not his story anymore. He's now on a computer screen and he's being viewed by Rachel, who I play. Mm -hmm. And that was what I, that was initially what I was going with, but obviously we couldn't use just like heaven. We actually did shoot like two versions, one mm -hmm. with surrogate Valentine, which is his original song and one with daily, uh, with, with just like heaven, just to see. And then when it came clear that, A, we weren't going to be able to afford Just Like Heaven, and B, like when we were doing testing, the movie I had felt needed to introduce the three women right away. Otherwise, you were going like 10 minutes, 15 minutes without seeing another character. And I think it was just too confusing for the audience. Mm -hmm. So we were trying to think of like, how can we make it so that all three women are introduced in the first, you know, two minutes? Mm -hmm. And I thought like, oh, well, this is a music movie. We should do a music video type of thing. We should have something with the song Surrogate Valentine. And so that's when Dave said, you know, I have some old footage of him. And that's when we went into there. And as we started going through the old footage, we started seeing like all this B-roll of Ye Ming and me and Erica. And like, then suddenly it all made sense. Like, this is how we'll do it. We'll do a little music video. We'll show flashbacks and then people won't be confused when these women show up in another 20 minutes. Can I ask just a, a question for our listeners at home? Did you get a quote on how much Just Like Heaven would have cost if you had the money? So my husband works on a Netflix show called Big Mouth. 
And so he constantly is like looking into the cost of songs mm-hmm. and with Big Mouth, obviously, they're able to pay for a lot of those songs. Sure. So you and got a quote pretty quickly. I got, yeah, like I got a sense and I quickly saw that it was mm-hmm. going to be like at least half my budget. Mm-hmm. Even if I like wrote to Robert Smith and was like, hey, would sure. you give it to me for free? It's still the record company. Yeah, that would he, probably be like, no. He doesn't <laughs> own the rights to yeah. that song, unfortunately. Yeah, I think that's always like a thing to to remind people. And also, like, your husband's in a kind of privileged situation where he's getting responses. You know, like, if Netflix is like, hey, we love a quote on this famous song, it's in the publishing company's best interest to get back to them because they represent a huge amount of money for them. But if you're an indie producer and you're like, could you cut me a deal for Just Like Heaven? You probably won't even get a response back. We were thinking about whether or not to get just a festival clearance for it. And even that, suddenly I was just like, the more the more difficult things got, this is just my general feeling about this whole process. Like, mm-hmm. the more complicated and difficult it became, the more I was just like, I'm willing to let this go. I don't yeah. absolutely have to have it. Yeah, I think that festival rights used to be a thing back in the day a little bit more. You know, that you could, like, screen the movie and people would be like, oh, man, that's so incredible. I love this. It's going to be a big buyout and there's going to be a bidding war and at Sundance or whatever. Um, and I think because that's just not the way that movies are licensed the same way and like the deliverables are a little more complicated now that like the idea of having to go back and then renegotiate with an artist that knows now that they have the upper hand yeah it's a pretty pretty messy situation to be in so i think most music supervisors really push towards an all rights sort of situation at that point so Um, i'm right in the middle of music on my mind. <laughs> yeah, so I'm like, yeah, let's talk about music. Uh, well, I did want to actually ask a little bit more about music because your movie, it's not a musical per se, but it's about musicians. And so there's a lot of, there's a couple, or there's, a, there's some scenes where people are writing music. There's scenes where people are performing. There's montages with music played by the characters. How much of that music did you write into the script? And did you write any of the songs or did all the music come from the actor musicians that you cast? So all the score was done by Go Nakamura and he had composed a lot of that music already for the other movies. Mm -hmm. So we were just pulling from that library for when we were editing. I was already really familiar with both Go and Yaming's songs. And when I was writing the movie, actually, the reason it's called I Will Make You Mine is because I went through a list of Yaming songs and just mm-hmm. was like, I Will Make You Mine sounds like the name of a movie. Let's sure. name it that. Um, and then when we went in and read the lyrics to it, I was like, oh, I could write a couple scenes around this. Oh, so, that's awesome. But it was great because, you know, I already knew going into it when we were filming what the feel of every scene would be like. I knew what song I would be editing to. And I could play it for them. I could play it for the crew a little bit. And everyone could just get into that headspace, like knowing exactly what it was going to feel like. But Go and Yaming did write one song each for the movie. Uh, Go for the end credit sequence and Yaming for the part where she serenades Go with the song called Eskimo Eyes. But other than that, like everything was already done. So it was great because, you know, they were just going to give me the rights to use all their music. 
And mm-hmm. that was like such like a luxury because I could just pick and choose. So for that Eskimo Eyes song, I think it's the song, right, where she says, hey, I wrote a song about you mm-hmm. a long time ago, and I'm sorry if it's offensive. Yes. And then she sings it. it and it's kind of this, like, perfect song for the moment because she's kind of mad at him when she wrote the song. Did you Were you involved in the lyrics of that at all, or did you just kind of give her a, a prompt and she went off and wrote it on her own? No. What happened was... Gaming showed up. She's from the Bay Area. And she showed up on set and was like, oh, by the way, I, I wrote a song in character for Go. Mm-hmm. Uh, can I play it for you? And she sent it to me, like like the demo. And I listened to it like after we finished shooting one day. And she, I was like, I don't know what I'm going to do with this. Like, I, It's not in sure. the script. And I was like, well, maybe I'll put it on the end credit sequence or something. And mm-hmm. I was like, I'm not going to think about this. And then when we were actually filming the scene of them writing music and like falling in love, I like had them eating ice cream and like doing improv. And then I was like, hey, we have a few more hours. Let's like let's Mm -hmm. have you sing that song. Why don't we just like make up a scene on the spot? So it's funny because like that's actually one of my favorite scenes in the entire film. And like it was it was like by totally by accident. And then when we went and edited it, my husband actually edited it with me. We were just like, cut out all that other shit. (laughs) I don't want (laughs) to see like on that montage, that cutesy montage of them falling in love and drinking beer and eating ice cream. I want to see like her serenade him. So that's what we ended up using. Oh, wow. That's awesome. I, yeah. I feel like what I'm hearing here is that for a long time you were happy acting and that was like your your lot in life and your skill and it's kind of its own, you know, super challenging thing to be focused on in the first place. But when you decided to turn your hand towards directing, I feel like you gave yourself permission to just like be inspired in a lot of different ways and that to me is really interesting and pretty teachable, right? I think it's it's easy for someone to be like, well, you know, like I was in these two movies, but like I'd love to see another one, but not go, oh, well, I'll make it. You know what I mean? Even down to the, the moment of like, oh, I have this song. I don't know what to do with it. Let's just play and we'll find something, right? That's like a pretty important thing for people to take away. Keep yourself open, be opportunistic, figure it out, and then... You get to build on top of those different ideas and those different seeds of inspiration wherever they come from. And also, I think something that I didn't think about as a director was that, you know, like, I feel like she wrote the song. I had to give her the opportunity to present it on Mm -hmm. film at some point, even if I was going to end up cutting it out. Just as respect to her as a person and as an artist and as a musician, I owed it to her. Mm-hmm. to at least capture some of it. And I think that helped open her up also, mm-hmm. you know, because she felt like she was heard. And I think that's like something pretty important that like sometimes when I'm being directed, mm. I just feel like I'm not being heard. And sure. at the end of the day, it's not like I hold it against the director, but like, I think subconsciously, maybe a little bit, I get like a little bitter. So like I just wanted to offer that. If there's her. a thing this podcast has taught me is that I need to be more open to listening to actors and be more sensitive to their needs because i feel like if an actor was like hey i wrote this song it's in character i'd be like well you're fired we don't have any <laughs> i'd be like oh thank you so much and then 
No, you wouldn't. <laughs> well, you, look, it depends on like what the schedule is. If if I found myself with like oh an extra hour, if you're working with like Avery Munson and you're doing some show or something, and I he's oh, like, hey, yeah, I came up with this bit that would be perfect for this. Thing. I would I would probably do it. Yeah, but well, I guess what I'm saying is is like I would I tend to be very protective of the schedule and the hours, and I, if I I can't think of a time where I've been like oh we're done early let's keep rolling. Like I just kind of would pad things out and take more takes and try different alts so that I just hoard that. I hoard takes basically and hoard angles. So that I wouldn't have facilitated that the way that you did, which I like very much. And obviously, like you said, it's a, a piece that you really love and a, being open to that, I think is important. And so it's something I'm trying to, to learn and take away from for sure. And, and I think oftentimes actors turn directors are just much more in tune with all of that, you know? Yeah, I guess that makes sense. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I've had experiences where I've worked with actors, like kind of celebrity-type actors that are not really... They don't care too much about my opinion on anything. <laughs> and I've found... I used to kind of fight against that. Like, well, this is what... This is the shot list. You know, we were planning on having you walk over here, and, the, you know, you land in the over-the-shoulder, and it looks good, and then this is why it's cool. And they're like, nah, I'm not doing that. And I've kind of learned that, like, if I embrace them and just say, okay, what do you want to do? Let's figure out something that works for you and the camera. That a lot of times that's the best stuff we shoot that day, you mm -hmm. know, because it's them being themselves and finding, like, the way that they're most comfortable or charismatic or dynamic on camera. But, yeah, it's hard, I think, for us non-actors to come up with this plan, work so hard on the plan, and then see that the plan is getting messed up by other people on set, you know? Well, what uh, you just said, like, totally made me think, like, if I was said asked that by a director, like, let's, like, yeah, let's just see what you what you got. And I, they gave me at least, like, one or two takes that way. I'd be willing to do whatever the hell they wanted sure. yeah, after yeah. that. Because I felt like at least I got it to do it my way. And then, you know, they can respect you because you've respected them. Right. Right. And it's not ever to me, it's never about a lack of respect. It's more about you have to get certain just, things. Yeah. Yeah. Like there, the I just always feel like my grocery list is already too long. But and let me ask so, you, Matt, yeah. on you just did an indie feature that's a romantic comedy. Sure. Right. Yeah. Compared to that. And there's a lot of actors and a lot of scenes and a lot of like opportunities to chew the scenery, mm -hmm. so to speak, as opposed to a commercial where it's like we've got three seconds for this shot, four seconds for this shot. We have to make sure we see the product well for these four seconds. Do you find that in the feature, even though I know you were producing and not directing, but did you find that the environment on set was a little more like looking to the actors, to what they bring to the to the creativity yeah, as opposed certainly. to like how they fit into this. Certainly. Yeah. 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 Certainly. I think like coming from like commercials, it's just like, there's not really the same sort of opportunities that a feature offers for sure. Yeah. I think it's always just like uh, an issue of like, like Lynn, it sounds like you did a really good job of facilitating an environment where people can bring things to the table. They know that that's an, an option Right. And that you make room for it when somebody brings something special to you. And I think that we tried to do that certainly with the with the what are you doing New Year's? But also it, there's always going to be that balance of like 
you're uh, losing light. schedule. Yeah. Like, you know, sometimes you'd be like, okay, yeah, you, you, you know, let, let's try one more, or, you know, let's, let's do a couple more takes of this or that, or like explore a little bit. And sometimes it'd be like, well, you've got, the sun is changing. So let's just get it real quick, you know? Yeah. So it's nice about black and white. You don't need sun. <laughs> everything looks good all the time. But Lynn, I think to your point, you earn people's trust so that when someone says, hey, I'm sorry, I can't give you more takes because the sun is going down, they believe you. They have, they have faith in, in the director for whatever their reasoning is, you know? Yeah, I didn't. I never noticed how much of um, directing is. It feels a little bit like I don't know. If babysitting is the right word, but like psychology mm-hmm. of of just like learning how people work and how they work their best and figuring out like ways to help judo, them do the best. Yeah, it's kind of like judo because you are taking like energy and momentum from one side, and instead mm-hmm. of trying to fight it or push it back or <laughs> karate chop it. You're trying to figure out how to use that momentum and roll it like, into yes the, and it, yeah. right? Like yeah. move it so that it lands in the right place. Pivot so it into the thing you need. Yeah. yeah. It ends up being in the position that is best for you, even though they kind of got themselves into that position. You know? Totally. I mean, it sounds right. I'm only a black belt in judo, so. <laughs> the, so one other thing I noticed, and I'm curious if it, how intentional it was, is it seemed like the movie started off like a little more rigid and static like kind of tripod and dolly and you have like like there's a shot of an alexa as you are walking towards it you know kind of very precise cinematography and as the story goes on and things are spiraling more kind of out of control with the relationships it seems a little more handheld a a lot looser and more kind of organic camera movement is that is that something that i just in thought i saw or was that something that you were like intending or or is it more based on characters That was totally, well, so Bill and I had talked about establishing sort of three different looks for the three different women. And so that was something that I was pretty clear on was that I I did want for Rachel, my character, for things to all be on tripod. But then when, when Go comes back into her life and she starts to lie, I did want it to get a lot more handheld. And by the end of that shoot, like, both GPs were like so angry at me because I just like, <laughs> was like, it's handheld, it's handheld. But I, it's funny that like, you know, we're talking about shot lists sort of right now because when I was prepping to do this movie, I didn't really know what a shot list was. Like I knew what it was, but I didn't know how to do it. So I like literally Googled how to put together a shot list and like something led me to something to led me to something. And then like it led me to your podcast Oh, and then I the, just started the how to listening. how to shot list episode. Probably. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. Like I just all I was like was like I, I remember I just kept like googling basic things that filmmakers do. And then I like felt like, well, at least like I can just go through like the archives of everything these guys have said mm-hmm. and feel like I'm in, like somewhat of a filmmaker and like at least like trick myself <laughs> into thinking like I'm part of this world because it felt so foreign to me mm-hmm. of like thinking of like I'm so used to being on a set and then like the second they yell cut I'm like either in my trailer or like at craft service right. like not paying attention to anything life is good being yeah. an actor is fun yeah. right? <laughs> well I have to say you know I've worked more than ever after I finished directing this past year these past couple of years and 
every time I'm on a set now, it's so much fun because I don't go back to my trailer anymore. I do mm-hmm. hang around and I talk to everybody because it's just, it's fun. I want to learn more because I feel like I have so much to learn and it, it passes the time so much quicker than like sure, sitting, that's sitting alone <laughs> in a trailer and being on your phone, you know? Also, I, for people who haven't been in one of those trailers, you, you the only trailer you ever see on like a TV show or something, it's like a full, a full. Yeah, I don't have those trailers. <laughs> yeah, like when you're like a guest star or something or a co-star, they'll put you in like what they'll call like a four banger or a three banger or a two would be luxurious. Right. But basically, yeah. like they're slicing a trailer up into smaller and smaller closet sized claustrophobic little tombs basically so it's not like you're kicking back on the sofa and like flipping through channels on tv or whatever you're just in like a weird little dressing room yeah for the most part yeah that shakes every time someone gets in or out or whatever but sometimes you do need you do need that that resting time which is yeah which is something that surprised me i thought like i would be way too exhausted being on set all day I thought, like, by the end of the day, I would just, like, die. But I, I was one of those people that was like, can we watch dailies? Yeah. Well, the, the very last thing I wanted to talk to you about before we wrap up is kind of related to the locations. They're kind of, a, I think, part of what makes your movie work, in my opinion, and, like, probably the reason it has, like, 100% on Rotten Tomatoes is because there's kind of, like, some measured subtlety. Nothing feels, like, really pushed too hard, and the three things kind of that I noticed is, like, a romantic drama, but you're never... It's very low on melodrama, you know? Mm -hmm. Two... You have, like, an all-Asian cast, but it's, like, never really acknowledged in any, in any way. You know, I think there's one scene where, like, your Caucasian husband mispronounces a Japanese name or something. But that's, a, that's about kind of, like, the only thing. And then also, it seems like it takes place in L.A., but I think you mentioned Santa Monica one time, but otherwise it's not really mentioned. But it feels like a very L.A. movie, you know, if you just see the apartments and the houses and the traffic and the streets. Like, can you talk at all about, like, how you found... Like the balance of like mm-hmm. presenting stuff without being like, hey, look at this. She's, you know, Chinese or this is Santa mm-hmm. Monica or this is a very sad person. I feel like a lot of the things that I have either auditioned for or been in throughout my career have really called attention to being Asian. And I just was really wanting to show what my actual life felt like, where I have a bunch of Asian friends and none of us sit around talking about how Asian we are. And (laughs) in terms of location, I just wanted to use places that I was familiar with and that I was comfortable with. A lot of the places we Mm -hmm. ended up filming in, uh, I was friendly with like either the restaurant owner or the shop owner or the house we ended up filming in. So like a lot of it just organically felt like Mm -hmm. my version of LA and my Mm -hmm. version of what my friend group looks like and acts like. And uh, yeah, there was a part of me that like, I guess I'm so sick of talking about the intergenerational cultural whatever in like a monologue like that I was just like I don't I don't need to see another movie sure. with that yeah so I purposefully did not do that and I also purposefully cast people like Tamlin Tamita who I grew up watching in the Karate Kid and Joy Luck Club and you know people who I felt like I'm never going to get a chance to work with them because the chances of having two Asian women in the same movie are very small and so I'm going to make this happen myself 
And and I'm going to make it so that like, we don't have to like, keep calling attention to the fact that we're Asian. But there was also like a specificity to it. Like even mm-hmm. when we were like doing that house that Ayako's father is supposed to have owned, we did like, go on Facebook and be like, okay, what does a Japanese man's house look like? Mm-hmm. And the stuff people said was like, kind of incredible and so specific, like old electronics, mm-hmm. a box of tissues and nuts <laughs> on the table, you know, like just really specific things and like ramen in the cupboards and we used a lot of that you know in a way that like I feel like if it wasn't written by somebody who was Asian maybe they'd be like here's the ramen (laughs) or I don't know maybe or like or that like you would feel like you had to call attention to it but I guess I just I I just didn't want to have to do that Mm -hmm. yeah no I love that and it's something that I noticed that I told my wife after something, I was like, oh, I just watched this movie. And it was, it was cool because there was a lot of texture and specificity, like you said, but it's never calling attention to itself. You know what was funny was when we had to do Foley work, I had to actually go through the entire movie and make notes of where people weren't wearing shoes because the whole thing <laughs> would come back. The, that's yeah. what Dave said with the first two movies, that they'd always come back and like everyone would have like footsteps. And you'd be like, right. they're Japanese. <laughs> right, right. right. That's really funny. Well, it gives me a lot of food for thought, too, because I, you know, when I was starting out and I was like writing script and try, trying to come up with things and basing a lot of characters on my own life, and I would make them... They're like a Jewish guy or like an Israeli person. And I would be like, well, I, I need people to know that he's Jewish. So he should talk about his bar mitzvah in this scene, you know, like and all these things where like actually he could just have like a mezuzah on his doorway and no one even mm-hmm. needs he never even needs to acknowledge it. Like it's I guess kind of my note was a little bit about kind of like how movies have evolved, like your movie, but also just kind of as a filmmaker, there is like a subtlety that works can work really well if you do it right you know and i think i think you you did it right it's like you can be diverse without saying hey we're diverse you can set your place in a city without saying like hey here's 10 shots of the golden gate bridge or whatever you know and you can have relationship stories without crying and stuff you know mm-hmm. like i think there's almost like no crying in your movie there's only like it a maybe a little bit and i there's think there's only you do like it. during the funeral pretty much oh yeah well, yeah, funerals, yeah. people cry. As an actor, That's do real. you have an opinion about crying scenes? I used to really be frightened of crying scenes because my first thing that I ever did was a Law & Order mm-hmm. where I had to cry, and I will never forget, like, I was able to do it. When I showed up on set and I was, like, opposite Jerry Orbach and Jesse L. Martin, and I had to do what I did in the audition, and the directors kept coming up to me, like, kept saying that. Do what you did in the audition. Uh, yeah. Right. Which doesn't right. help. And so I started like not crying. And so the first thing I ever did was like me pretending to cry. And then I had that mental block in my head until I did Law & Order SVU. I was a New York actor. This is what every New York actor did. I was in Law & Order SVU in a hospital bed. And Mariska Hargitay really wanted to go watch a Lakers game at home. She was like... Sure. Cry, Lynn, cry. And I was like, oh, shit. She, I knew she wanted to get home, and I knew they had done her coverage already, and, like, it was all on me. And I was like, in the bed, like, rape victim, had to cry as I was yeah. talking about, like, who had done it. And uh, director, this time, I will never forget this, he told everyone to leave and was like, we're going to give you as much time as you want. 
And I like stood there being like, I better give them what they want because they're like, I was doing like a nude scene, you know, like everyone was like so quiet. And finally they all came back and I still couldn't do it because I was so Were in my like head. you like trying to I was think trying of sad to, moments and all that I was stuff? trying to get it there, but it just was not, I was like pulling all the stuff. I was like pulling my arm hair. But what he did, he had, he started whispering in Mariska Hargitay and Christopher Maloney's ear. <laughs> and what he had them do was basically do improv, like telling me I was a worthless piece of shit. And then it became like a thing of like me believing them because I can't cry, right? Because I'm a horrible actor, right? Yeah. That's why. Yeah. And then. Boy, oh Wait, boy. Are you serious? Oh, that and worked? It all came out. So now. I feel like if we would have done that, someone would sue us, don't you? I think that is so inappropriate and uncool. <laughs> But, but now I'm like, I've, I've, I've cried yeah. for my last six movies, like nonstop. <laughs> yeah, you've got this trauma you could call back. I, just, I can just, I can just let it flow. That now. is, that is the sense memory of all sense memories. That is crazy. I, I don't love crying in movies just because I feel like it's so results oriented. Trying not to cry is much more effective than crying I, to I me. I completely agree. But like now it's like to the point where like my body is so like ready to cry. Now you're ready. Yeah, yeah. That like it, sometimes it just keeps going. Yeah. It, even if we don't want it to, it'll just be there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the makeup person is mad at you now. They're like, I guess I have to keep resetting Lynn's look. Yeah. For actors at home, there's also things called tear sticks, oh, which, yeah, I, uh, which, which is basically. work for me. It's like menthol in yeah. a chapstick sort of form, and you put it under your eyes, and it just irritates them. No, it's, it's like chopping something they spray in your eye, too. It's a different type of tear. Right, right. You know? Yeah. I think, like, for the most part, to get an actor to cry, you have to, like, make them actually feel those feelings. Otherwise, you're watching somebody do a magic trick. Right, right. You're not watching them cry. You're watching them, like, think about crying. Well, and I think that sometimes... A writer will put, you know, sobbing or tears roll down their face or something like that as a way of explaining to the reader, this is an emotional scene. But there's so many different ways that you can display emotion that don't have anything to do with tears coming out of people's eyes. And so I think sometimes people get really literal with that. And that drives me nuts. It's because actors are trained to really respect the writer. I don't blame that. I, I so do not. So we're trying to get the single tear. A hundred percent. I have a single tear on every, in every scene. <laughs> open on a single tear. Oren's a very good VFX artist. So it's okay. More of a tear director. A tear jerker, I think. Is <laughs> yeah. In the industry. I fluff tears. I got us on a tangent. I'm sorry, Lynn. We we were putting a bow on it and then... um. Oh, yeah. No, I was going to say, so you made this movie. It's got obviously an awesome response. It's out May 26th. It's going to come out probably right around when this episode comes out. What's next? What's the plan? Are you now a director or are you back to hanging out in your trailer and at craft service? Well, I had two movies in the can that I was acting in that it'll be interesting to see. One of them is Roxy She's movie, Pulling mm-hmm. to Paradise. Another movie is called See You Then, which is a movie by Ari Walker that Vanishing yeah. Angle did. So it'll be interesting to see what ends up happening with those movies at the end of this year. The weirdest thing is like a couple of other filmmakers I know now want to do, um, want me to be in their movies, which is awesome. But like, you know, they're all like going to be super low budget. Mm-hmm. and very small sets and i am asthmatic and mm-hmm. so that's like a risk that i just sort of am like i don't know if this is gonna happen yeah. until there's a vaccine like i know how these little sets are very germy yeah so i don't know what's gonna end up happening with directing because it takes up so much 
of your time and your bandwidth. I just don't know if I'm just willing to, to do it just to do it. So I, I it, that's a strange thing for me to say because as an actor, I'm just willing to do whatever. It's hard for me to say no. But um, already, like, as a director, like, I, I find myself, like, passing up things that I just, I don't want to take the opportunity away from somebody else who actually really wants to do it and then just do like a half-assed job at it myself. Well, awesome. Well, if people want to find out more about you and the movie, where can they find you online? Well, you can find everything about me on lynchen.com, but uh, I would love for people to visit IWillMakeYouMind.com, which is where there's going to be a lot of fun things like Zoom backgrounds and extra things like director's commentary and the link to the soundtrack. And we got a lot of like events and Q and A's coming up. So it's exciting. We'll see what ends up happening with this film. Well, congratulations again. Would you like to hang out and endorse with us? Oh yes, please. Unpaid endorsements. Okay. So you guys know how, if you're on YouTube and you are trying to watch a video and it's like maybe an informational video or something you want to get through quickly, you can change the playback speed to two X or whatever. You can watch a video faster, right? If it's informational, or cooking, like a lot of these tutorial videos, sometimes I watch faster. And obviously with podcasts, sometimes you want to get through them quicker. You can listen to them faster. But if somebody sends you a Vimeo link or you're watching Netflix, you cannot watch those things faster. And sometimes you got to watch a whole movie in like an hour. Well, I found this extension for Chrome. It's called Speed Up Video, and it lets you watch... Any HTML-powered video, which is like Netflix, Vimeo, a lot of other sites, at any speed you want. So you can just watch everything 50% faster if you are trying to watch a lot of things in a certain amount of time. That's good to know. Yeah. Because I do do listen to things two times the speed, which drives my husband crazy. 2x is a little crazy, but 1.5, I find, is quite bearable. Only for informational stuff, though, for me. Like, if it's something where I know that the timing is important or that they thought about it, mm-hmm. if it's not just kind of people conversationally laying out something, then, yeah, 1.5 is probably my threshold. Though I do make sure to watch the intro logo of any tutorial video I ever get. <laughs> right. I want 30 seconds of, like, slow yeah. zooms, like a some particle, s- like a particle simulation. That's really important. That or gaming videos. It's just, like, give me that big, beefy logo first. That's right. uh, Give me full attention on that stuff. Well, if you want to make your movie uh, fast-forward proof, put a lot of music in it. <laughs> that stuff go. doesn't play so well in 2X. <laughs> Perfect. Um, Lynn, you got anything? Yes, I do. So before this whole quarantine thing happened, I used to go to the movies like pretty much every day. I was probably the reason that movie pass went out of business. Uh, And I was a proud AMC Stubbs member. Mm -hmm. And so I eat a lot of popcorn. That's usually what I eat for lunch or dinner. Yeah, yeah. Like a giant tub. So what I did was I found on Amazon this microwave popcorn popper. It's like a silicone bag it's like bright yes. red it's changed my life because you just put the three tablespoons in and you mm-hmm. pop it for two and a half minutes is the sweet spot and then you're left with a giant bowl of popcorn that you can flavor any which way you would like and it's very convenient i'm very happy with it 
I if, um, it's, if it's a small microwave too, which is what I have, okay. I'm looking on Amazon. It's called the Sestari Kitchen, C-E-S-T-A-R-I Kitchen. I don't know if that's how you, maybe it's Kestari, but it's, it makes, it says it makes eight cups. It's 1597. It's on Amazon prime with free returns. I'm, I'm, I'm very happy with, with that. I use oh, it almost nice. every day. The true nice. endorsement. Love yes. it. Well, my endorsement is the show Dave. Did you guys watch the show, Dave? It's on FX. Tony Ascenda did the Tony did a couple finale. episodes that are really great. Okay. And uh, Taylor Misiak, who is in CVNT5, is also one of the leads on the show. But even separate from all of that stuff, uh, it's really, really good. And I think it's easy to underestimate, like, the funny rapper TV show. I think it's really like nuanced and thoughtful and, and funny and good. And like they just got picked up for a second season, so it brought it back to top of mind. But it's one of our favorite shows and like relatively quick to watch through. So give Dave a chance. If you have a Hulu subscription, I think all of FX programming is on Hulu now. So mm-hmm. pretty great. Yeah, I need to hop back on that. And I heard the guy that plays his hype man is like his real hype man or something. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Gata is his name. And has, uh, I think that's, it's Tony's episode actually, has a really incredible performance in one of his episodes. It's really good. Well, if you want to find out more about these endorsements or anything we talked about, you can go to our website, justshootitpod.com. You can follow us on all social media at justshootitpod. You can email us, justshootitpod at gmail.com. And you can find me on Instagram. I'm at O. Kaplan. Uh, you can find me at Mr. Badenlo. Our webmaster is Ewan Williams. And you're listening to The Artist Jazar, which was provided by the Free Music Archive. Additional ad music by Musicbed. Thanks. Thanks, Bye. everyone.